Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. This morning's sermon is entitled, From Death to Life, Actions Speak Louder Than Words. Now, this sermon is the third sermon in the series where I've been taking a look at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, I entitled it, Actions Speak Louder Than Words. You'll figure that out in just a few moments. But how many of you have ever heard that phrase before, Actions Speak Louder Than Words? I was thinking through some of the sayings that I was raised on. That was a huge one. My father, very Germanic. It was about action. And he would say things like, don't just sit there and talk about it. Get up and do it. Anyone? Okay, well. The next one was talk is cheap. Ever heard that one before? Am I the only one? Yeah. And then there was a a favorite saying of my dad. It went something like this. Backseat drivers and armchair quarterbacks aren't allowed here. You know what that means, right? When people sit in the back seat and complain, and then someone sits in their easy chair and complains about the quarterback. And if you ever do that against the Green Bay Packers, it's something akin to God's judgment probably would come against you. But again, actions speak louder than words, and we're going to get to that in a few moments. But before we get to the passage that we're going to be looking at, which is actually a banquet that follows the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was to celebrate Jesus and what he had done for Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, as well as Lazarus. But before we get there, I want to make a, a couple of reminders from the last two Sundays. First of all, there are seven I am statements that Jesus announces in the Gospel of John. There are seven. There are also seven miracles in the Gospel of John that John announces as signs. They actually point to something. They're not random. They're very specific, and they point to something about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, when it comes to the seven I am statements, that word I am, or those words I am, are taken from the Older Testament When God recruits and calls Moses to lead the children of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt towards the promised land. And so when Moses approaches the burning bush, God calls him from being a shepherd to being a national leader. When he does, Moses looks at that bush and says this, but God, who shall I say is sending me? In other words, which God are you? Who in the world are you? And God responds by saying this, tell them the I am has sent you. I am. And so what we know is those two words, I am, are unique and they're specific about God and God alone. So what we find in the Gospel of John is seven times Jesus uses those exact words translated into Greek. It's ego ami. Seven times he says, I am the good shepherd, or I am the bread of life. There are seven of them. The fifth of them is the one where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Let's read it together. It's John eleven twenty six. Jesus answered her, meaning Martha, the sister of Lazarus. She runs into Jesus before he gets to the tomb to see Lazarus raised from the dead. And here's what the text tells us. Jesus said to her, meaning Martha, I am, ego a me, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she responds, yes. Now, I want us to sit on this for a moment. Think about what Jesus just said. Jesus just said that in him, you will go from death to life. He promises it. And the raising of Lazarus is the exclamation point on his declaration that that's who he is. Now remember, it's not just what he does, it's who he is. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That claim is shocking. He is declaring that there is a new kind of life that he is bringing it into the world and all we have to do is believe in him. And when you do, it's yours. It's yours. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You believe in him. Now, the passages that we're getting ready to read that explain this banquet in honor of Jesus starts out in John chapter 12, verse 1. And I'm going to do something unusual. We're actually going to take a look at the first verse, and then we're going to read all the verses. But we need to start with the first one. John 12, 1 gives us the setting for our Bible reading. Here it is. Here's what John writes. He writes, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So that is the context for the banquet that we're getting ready to read about. But in order to understand the banquet, we need to look at three things. We need to look at Passover. What is it? Because John 12, 1 says that six days before Passover, Jesus goes to Bethany. We need to find out what Bethany's all about. And then also it says, Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. They're important. First of all, Passover. What is Passover? Passover is the Jewish holiday in which we celebrate Easter. But Passover begins in the Older Testament at the beginning of the book of Exodus. God comes to Moses, calls him as a national leader from being a shepherd. That's the point at which Moses says to God, who's sending me, God says, the I am that I am is sending you. What ends up happening is Moses becomes the leader of the, the people of Israel, and then God does something supernatural to back up Moses. What he does is he sends 10 plagues onto the nation of Israel. There are 10. Now, it's very specific here. Those 10 plagues are not random. There are 10 Egyptian gods, and those gods acclaim the very things that each one of those 10 plagues do. The plagues are not random at all. Ten Egyptian gods, the plagues actually show that the God of Israel dominates the gods of the Egyptians. It's very clear. 
The last one is where Passover comes from. The final plague, and the plague that makes Pharaoh say to the Israelite people, you need to leave, you can go into the promised land, or at least go with Moses. That last plague is when God sends a death angel throughout all of Egypt, and that death angel is going to kill the oldest, or take the life of, the oldest male child, and the oldest male animal of the fields. And so what ends up happening, God, as he always does, comes to his people with mercy and says, if you will do this, if you will take the blood of a lamb and you will place it on the door frame of your house, if you will do that on the night that the death angel's getting ready to move, the death angel will come to your house, see the blood of the lamb and pass over you. And so that's exactly what happens. Now, what's interesting, though, in the book of Exodus is God shows up through Moses and says, every Jewish person from that day on must commemorate that miraculous passing over where the death angel passes over. It must be commemorated with a feast. Every year, same day, all Jewish people from then on. It's literally commanded in the book of Exodus. And so what we have is Jesus, who's Jewish, is there six days in Bethany prior to the Passover. So what we know is Jesus is now in Bethany. Now what's interesting about Bethany is this. Bethany is a town on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. I've been to Bethany. And it's less than two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is a word transcribed in Syriac, meaning... Poor house, that's important to remember. So it's a town that historically has been known for where poor people live. Again, it's on the Mount of Olives and it's about a two mile journey from Jerusalem, so it's really close. And then the third thing, the third thing that the introduction tells us is that there's a guy named Lazarus whom Jesus has raised from the dead and we need to know something. There is the difference between being resuscitated and being resurrected. There's a difference. I want to talk about that now. When Jesus, we looked at this the past two weeks, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it is a resuscitation. It is not resurrection. It's not. Here's the difference. Resuscitation is when your physical body gets the life back that has left it, That physical body comes back to life, it lives, but then it faces death again, and it dies. I'm going to be talking about this in depth next week. Resurrection is when your physical body, which is face death, is resurrected, and you are given a new body that is similar, if not exactly the same, as the one Jesus received when he was dead, buried, and resurrected. His resurrected body would never face death again. Death would not be able to get a hold and bring death back in again. So the promise in the scriptures is this. You put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. You believe he's the resurrection and the life. And when you do, there will come a day when you die. And when you are resurrected after that death, you will receive a new, what Paul calls, glorified body. Glorified means this, that when I'm resurrected, I will get a body that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's what's going to happen. 
I will no longer, by the way, growing up, heart wig, I was called heart twig all the time because I was skinny, like a twig. My resurrected body will look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm convinced of it. But the point about the resurrected body, again, we're going to talk about this next week, is that that body can live forever. It lives forever. Where is Lazarus now? He's dead. So Lazarus was resuscitated. Life came back to him, and he lived, and somehow he died. The Gospels don't tell us. Somehow, Lazarus physically dies and is buried again. He was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. Now, in looking at our story, we've kind of got the context for it. We've got Passover. Jesus, six days prior to Passover, ends up in Bethany, which is just over the hill from Jerusalem, where all the people are gathering to celebrate Passover and... Lazarus, who was resuscitated, is hanging out in the house with Jesus. Now let's pick up our reading. It's John 12, 1 through 11. John 12, 1 through 11. Let's read. Here's what the text tells us. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. Just so you know, pure nard is a perfume that was brought in from northern India. It was extremely pungent. It was absolutely beautiful smelling, and only wealthy people could afford it. And if you had it, you would save it for a special occasion. The gospel reading tells us it was worth about a year's wages. About a year's wages and one little 10-ounce bottle. Reading on. The scripture tells us that Mary took about a, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus or betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Remember, he had resuscitated Lazarus. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, as we move into this sermon, here's something to know. The end of chapter 11 tells you that the religious leaders have determined Jesus must die. At the end of the reading that we just finished, it says it again. The story of the banquet is framed by people announcing this guy needs to die. That's the bookends of the story. Now, in looking at this episode, 
we begin to ask ourselves, why was Jesus being condemned to death? Why? What was it about him? What was it that he had done? Why is it that the gospel wants you to know before the banquet and after the banquet that people had announced the dude asked to die? What has he done? First of all, it wasn't because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Mark chapter 5 tells us near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had raised a little girl at the age of 12 from death. He'd done it before. No one looked at that and said he needs to die, so it can't be that. What it obviously is, is that Jesus had declared, I am the resurrection and the life. That's why. Because here he was, raising someone from death to life, and he announced that that's who he is, not just what he does. The next thing is this. Passover is the celebration of the escape from death by the blood of the Lamb. And so here Jesus is in Bethany, within the shadow of Jerusalem, making this claim and proving that in him there's another way to get away from death. But it's found in him. And understanding again that Bethany is right there. The religious leaders look and they say, this guy must be killed, he must be stopped. Now what's amazing to note is that we just read from John chapter 12. Listen, there are, 40, there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 11, we've already begun to move towards the cross. Up to half of every gospel is about the last six days of Jesus' life. Up to half. This gospel, it's literally half. You are halfway through the gospel, and the writer already focuses on the next six days. What do you think the point of all four gospels is? It's about the resurrection. It's about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. Half of the gospel points just to that. It's important to remember this. Now, what we discover in the story we read is that Jesus is now moving towards his death. People around him are declaring he needs to die, and then someone throws him a banquet. How many of you like banquets? Let me put it this way. How many of you like wedding receptions and parties? You like them? Yes. I like everything about banquets except for dry chicken. Have you ever noticed that a lot of banquets have dry chicken? Don't order the chicken. If you eat it, go fish, beef, something else, usually better. Anyway, that's some pastoral advice. But when I think about a banquet, I think about sort of a gathering to celebrate someone or something. I think about a banquet that I was a part of when I was 11 years old. I was 11 years old. I was actually 10 and a half. And this is a picture that's taken from that banquet. That's, oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you. So this is my picture when I was 10 and a half. This picture was taken because our ice hockey team in Nina, Wisconsin, that's the lettering, won the Wisconsin State Squirt B state championships. Squirt B, not Squirt A, Squirt B. And the amazing thing is, in the state championship series, I never played once. I was what was called a bench boy, someone that rode the pine. 
Someone that wasn't really good enough, but I made the team just because I was good enough to make the team, but I never played. So I won a state championship and never skated one second during the entire tournament other than going from the locking room, locker room to the box where the team sat. Now with that said though, what ended up happening at this banquet where there were some town officials there and our team was there and our coach got up, he was, what he did was each player would stand and he'd say something really nice about you. But here's the problem. When we got the invitation to come to this banquet, none of us read it and everyone else showed up with a suit and tie and I showed up with farm clothes on. Never forget it. Ten and a half years old, dressed totally wrong for the occasion. It's in a restaurant, and the coach has each player stand. And I remember standing up, everyone else was dressed up, and here I was with farm clothes on, and it felt so awkward. I just wanted Coach Tom to be quiet, just don't say anything. And I just stood, and it felt like everyone was staring at me. It just felt that, it was incredibly awkward. And he was done, he sat down, and I just, I still remember that feeling to this day. Now in the banquet that we read about, something incredibly awkward happens. And that is, as Jesus is reclining, picture the Middle East, where people sit on the floor and recline. He's there, it's a banquet in his honor. And Mary, in the middle of the banquet, in the middle of the feast, goes over to Jesus, takes out this expensive perfume, breaks the bottle, and pours it over his feet. And then the gospel tells us, that she takes her hair and she begins to rub and dry and kind of massage his feet with her hair. Now, I've been to banquets. I've been to wedding receptions and I've been at parties to celebrate someone, a birthday, where something awkward has happened. I've been at wedding receptions where a family feud broke out. Someone kind of made the party about them instead of why everyone else was there. Has anyone else ever experienced that? You ever notice when that happens, people start checking their cell phones, they look at their shoes, they're trying to look eh, awkward. But what she does is very different than that. Mary doesn't make it about her. She just makes sure everyone there knows who it's about. That's what she does. And Mary goes to Jesus, and the scripture tells us she takes this perfume and she pours it on his feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 tells us during the time of Jesus, a woman's hair is her glory. And she takes her hair and she wipes his feet and the scriptures say, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's incredible. You know, olfactory senses and what you smell brings you back to an event. And here she is making Jesus the focus. She's worshiping him. She's loving him because he raised her brother from death to life. And she wants everyone to know he's the center of the event. But when she does that, and the beautiful perfume wafts through the house, it reminds me in my own life what it's like when I come into the house and my wife and two daughters love candles. They love them. I don't know why they cost so much. They're just wax. 
but they love them. And I'll walk in, and our house has this beautiful aroma. It just does something to you. There's Judas Iscariot, and he looks at what she does, and he says, the money should have been given to the poor. And the problem is, is on the surface, that sounds right. On the surface, how can anyone say no to that? It's one of those phrases that you could say during the time of Jesus that no one would have a defense for. Oh, if you're taking care of the poor, then everything else kind of just... But what's amazing is, is when you look at that phrase, the money should have been given to the poor, it kind of reminds me if you're in Christian community and someone comes up to you and says, you have pride in your life. What do you say to that? I mean, if you say, no, I don't, doesn't that kind of prove it? If they go, you have pride in your life, and then you list the five humble things that you did before breakfast, doesn't that sound even worse? It's just a non-defensible. So Judas looks at her love and her affection and looks at her worship of Jesus and he begins to calculate it in money and says, ah, should have been sold, money given to the poor. And by the way, sounds really good because you're in Bethany and that's the house of the poor. And what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus looks at her event and says, actually, Judas, she prepared me for burial. I'm on my death march. Within six days, I'll be dead. But what else is fascinating is John wants you to know that Judas is a liar. That he didn't say it out of the goodness of his heart for the poor because he dipped into the money bag for himself. What else is fascinating, though, is if you were to go into John chapter 13 and read verse 29, you would discover when Judas goes to betray Jesus... Jesus looks at Judas and says to him, go do what you've decided to do. And John 13, 29 tells us the disciples couldn't hear what Jesus had said to Judas and they thought either he had told Judas, take some money and go buy stuff for the festival or he had told Judas, it literally says this, go give money to the poor. It's fascinating. Judas was kind of connected with that as the holder of the money. But John wants you to know that's not why he said it. He said it because he didn't like the action that he had seen. But again, I want to be clear. When it comes to our faith in Jesus, action speaks louder than words. It really does. Judas is in his armchair playing armchair quarterback backseat driver. He's sitting there and he's passing judgment on what he sees. But Jesus frames her actions so differently. Jesus announces that she's preparing him for burial. How do we put feet to our faith when we look at this banquet thrown in honor of Jesus? How do we put feet to our faith? First of all, we keep Jesus first in all we do. When we look at this banquet, what Mary does is positions Jesus as the reason why people are there. That's why he's there. Listen, I'm a person that is all about serving the poor. 
It is actually one of the commands given in the scriptures that every follower of Jesus is to be involved with something to do with helping the poor. But I want you to notice that helping the poor never is greater than Jesus. Jesus says you will always have the poor with you. Focus on me. Don't make social action the center of your faith. Make sure it's Jesus. And then, consider again Mary's gratitude, humility, and worship. Picture her. She's sitting there at this party with her brother. He'd been dead for four days. And Jesus came in and gave him life. And she's sitting there at the party that's for Jesus and she's overwhelmed because he is the resurrection and the life. What do you do when that happens? You do all you can to be generous and to worship and to love. So she gets up with gratitude, humility, and worship and she loves Jesus. And Judas can't see to save his life why she would ever do that. As we close out our time, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And as we stand together into God's presence, I want us to take just a moment and close our eyes before we begin to worship. And as we do that, I want us to focus again on the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Have we been focusing on Christ? Has he been the center? Let's take just a moment to focus on him as we worship together.